0: right so I've got some coffee here I've taken a sip from that it's pretty good and I'm doing a mic check right now check check one two one two everything sounds pretty good so let's get started Hello and welcome to the introductory podcast lectures on psychoanalytic praxis. They are produced by me, Neil Gorman, in association with Surplus Jouissance Projects and the Aurora University School of Social Work. And this is the first podcast lecture in what is going to be a series of podcast lectures meant to supplement the content in a course which is called uh, Social Work 6521 Advanced Clinical Social Work which is a class that has students take a pretty big survey of a bunch of the different kinds of psychoanalytic theories that are out there and ask students to consider how they might go about using those theories in a variety of different clinical contexts. So in this first lecture, I'm going to try to do two things. The first thing I'm going to try to do is to describe two different categories of theories. And after I do that, I'm going to try to make an argument for which category of theory, psychoanalytic theory fits into which of the two it happens to be. Uh, And after I do that, what I'm going to do is I'm going to attempt to talk about and describe what I happen to believe is the most important, most fundamental concept within every single psychoanalytic theory out there. That concept is the concept of the unconscious. So to get us going in this, what I'm going to do is I'm going to start with a metaphor and i'm going this metaphor is that theories are kind of like buildings right that's the metaphor tell you a little bit more suss this out a bit there are some theories that are pretty simple they're like simple buildings what's an example of a simple building think of your typical suburban house a typical suburban house is a pretty simple building right it has been designed with the concept of providing, you know, people with some shelter. There's not a lot of complexity in that building. I would say that if we wanted to compare theories to this kind of structure, what I would say is that the behaviorism of B.F. Skinner is a pretty good example of what I'm calling a simple theory. I would also say that Pauline Boss's articulation of something called ambiguous loss is another great example of a simple theory. Now, the Moving on from that, what I want to claim is that exploring a simple theory is a lot like exploring a suburban house. You know, So imagine that you have a friend and that your friend buys a house out in the suburbs. And after they buy the house and move in, they do the thing that people do. They decide to have a housewarming party and they invite you and a bunch of their other friends to come see their new house. So you go to the housewarming party, you show up, you know, you ring the doorbell. And they answer the door, and they're all excited, and you're all excited. Wow, this is a really nice house. Yeah, thanks so much. Do you want the tour? They say, hey, let me give you the tour. And you. they take you around their house, and you check it out. As they take you around the house, they point out "No, there, there's this room, there's that room. So over here, what we have is the room where Abraham Lincoln was um, uh, rumored to have wrestled a vampire pig in the year 1844. Maybe they point out some of the interesting or cool features of the house. Maybe they talk about the things that they plan to change. And if you look over here in this closet, what you'll see is a, um, a secret passageway down to a cave that everybody is sort of creeped out by. And what we're thinking we're going to do to kind of limit the creep factor is turn it into a playroom for the children. So on and so forth. Now, because this is just a typical suburban house, which isn't really that complex of a structure, the whole tour might take 10, maybe 15 minutes. And then after that, you've seen everything you need to see from top to bottom, right? You know where all the rooms in the house are pretty much. You can find the bathroom if you need to use it. You know what rooms are like the common rooms where it's probably safe to mill about and look at things. And you know which rooms are more like the private rooms that you probably don't want to go into unless you want to be rude that sort of thing. You didn't need to take a whole lot of time in order to do this tour. You didn't need to invest a whole lot of energy into understanding kind of like the structure of the house. It didn't take that long. My claim is that simple theories are very much like that. They also don't really take a whole bunch of time or energy for the person who is examining them to understand them simple theories and simple buildings have a limited number of concepts or rooms and because there's a pretty small number of concepts or rooms it's pretty easy for you to kind of build a map of where all the rooms and slash all the concepts are and then kind of move through them with ease now before i go forward i want to make something as clear as i possibly can here simple theories are not bad theories a lot of times simple theories are awesome they're extremely useful they're very helpful They're great for certain things. Simple doesn't mean bad. It means simple. I also should probably point out that there are lots of people, and I mean lots and lots of people, who really like simple theories because they're simple. You know, I found a lot of people, just as I I talk to people about theory, who enjoy simple theories. And one of the things that they say they enjoy about them is that those simple theories don't take a ton of time and energy to understand. Additionally, they will point out that simple theories are oftentimes very practical. They might even use the term pragmatic to describe them. Having said all of that, I'm going to move on to the other kind of theory, the second kind of category of theory, which is complex theories. Earlier, I compared simple theories to a suburban house and what I'm gonna do next is I'm going to compare complex theories to castles really old kind of crazy elaborate castles my claim is that complex theories are very similar to strange old castles that have tons and tons of rooms or tons and tons of concepts and a lot of times they they kind of fit together in weird ways if you enter into a castle uh it's not like entering into a suburban house you if it's a big castle you might find yourself getting lost because it's so big and there's so many rooms in it i think that if you're going to try to explore a complex theory doing that is going to take a lot of time and a lot of energy certainly more time and energy than it would to explore a simple theory when you enter in through the front door a complex theory and you start moving through the rooms and the hallways, it's not uncommon that pretty soon you kind of find yourself a little lost and unsure of where you are and how you got there. For people who like complex theories, that's not a bad thing because even though they get lost when they're exploring a complex theory, they don't mind that because as they get lost, they also simultaneously discover a bunch of really cool, albeit bizarre, and unexpected stuff. let me tell you a little bit about my preference here. I really like the kinds of complex theories that I can get lost in. I get a real thrill from coming across the weird, strange things that lurk within the grand castles that are complex theories. Now, this is probably obvious to you at this point, That, but just in case it's not, I'll come right out and say it. It is my opinion that psychoanalytic theory is a complex theory. I started to explore it like 10 years back, and I feel like I've barely scratched the surface of all of the things that are in this theory. I feel like I've barely explored it. I feel like there's still so much more for me to learn about psychoanalytic theory, but I have probably explored it more than most people have, and what I'm hoping I'm going to be able to do in these podcast lectures is use what I have learned as I have explored the complex theory of psychoanalysis and share that with you in a way that helps you kind of explore psychoanalytic theory if that's something that you want to do. All right, so now that I've hopefully done the first thing that I set out to do, I described to you two different kinds of theories, simple theories and complex theories, and I made the claim that psychoanalytic theory falls into the latter category, that it's a complex theory. What I'm going to do now is I'm going to move on to the second part of this podcast lecture. And in the second part of this podcast lecture... What I'm going to do is try to tell you a couple of things, describe a couple of things, articulate a couple of things about what I happen to believe is the most important, vital kind of concept within the complex theory of psychoanalysis, and that is the unconscious. So if I were to stick with my metaphor of uh, psychoanalytic theory being like a grand old castle, I would say that the unconscious is kind of like the grand hall of that castle it is the room that the rest of the theory is structured around built around another way i guess you could think of it is to say that the unconscious is the primary load-bearing wall at the center of the structure that is psychoanalytic theory if this load-bearing wall were to come down i think the whole rest of the structure the whole rest of the theory would implode as well Another way to to say what I'm trying to say here would be to say that if you don't buy into the idea of the unconscious, it's probably going to be safe to say that you won't buy into any of the other claims that psychoanalytic theory makes. Uh, it You have to believe that there is this thing called the unconscious in order to kind of believe any of the other things that psychoanalytic theory suggests. If you don't believe in the unconscious, I mean you can of course learn about the theory that's possible. Um, But I don't think that you'll be convinced by any of the other claims that theory makes if you're not convinced by the claim that there is this thing called the unconscious. Uh, I'd also posit that if you don't have a good enough understanding of the unconscious, you won't be able to develop a good enough understanding of any of the other important concepts within psychoanalytic theory. So having said all of that, What I'm going to do next is start to examine the unconscious, start to explore the concept of the unconscious with you. And I'm going to do that by describing it in a couple of different ways, which I hope that you will find interesting and useful. According to psychoanalytic theory, unconscious desires, which are also called repressed desires, which is something that I'm going to be talking about in a future podcast lecture, where I talk about this thing called the return of the repressed, uh, those unconscious desires show up in different things that we say or do. These are things when they happen. They're not things that we expect and they oftentimes really don't make very much sense to us. When these desires, these unconscious desires do pop up in our speech and in our actions, they surprise us. They shock us. And as I said, what the unconscious kind of desires or, or wants is oftentimes very much at odds with what we are consciously trying to accomplish. One other way we could understand kind of the way that the unconscious functions in our life is through a term which gets thrown around a lot, which I'm sure all of you who are listening to this have heard. The term is self-sabotage. That has become a very common way that people refer to how the unconscious inserts itself into our day-to-day lives. And I think that the term is really helpful because the self in self-sabotage Could also be seen as um, our conscious plans what we consciously desire what we consciously want and the sabotage or the saboteur of those plans is a good stand-in for what psychoanalysis and what i am calling the unconscious when the unconscious does sabotage our conscious plans we're surprised and we're usually pretty baffled pretty confused if you've ever had the experience of saying or doing something that you think is embarrassing When you were trying to be impressive then you have experienced your unconscious interfering in your life you've experienced the unconscious sabotaging what it is that yourself your conscious mind kind of wants to make happen when when something unexpected like really unexpected does happen that kind of fouls us up that gets in the way of what we're trying to accomplish a lot of times people will go why did i do that why did i think that why did i say that If you've ever found yourself in that situation where you're going, why why did I just do that? Why did I just say that? Again, you've experienced the unconscious coming into your life and doing the thing that it does, which is kind of get in the way of our conscious plans pretty regularly. Another example of the unconscious would be when we tell ourselves something, we have create a conscious plan like I am going to lose weight. No more junk food for me and I mean it. I'm serious. I'm on a diet. Junk food is dead to me. And then... You know, after we've made that vow, we go to work and guess what? It's someone's birthday. So there's birthday cake in the break room. And even though we, you know, consciously said no more junk food for me, I'm I'm done with that. We go, oh, I'll, just have, I'll have, a, have a small piece. It would be rude if I didn't have a piece of the cake because, you know, like, or it would be weird. Maybe somebody will say that, even though it probably wouldn't be weird. We'll tell ourselves it would be weird if you didn't. And then after we've had one piece of cake, we're like, well, I've already wrecked the plan to diet. So I might as well have another bigger piece of cake. And then you know a little bit more time goes by, and somebody's like, "Hey, please take some cake home. There's cake left. Take it home," and and so you do, so on and so forth. Right? That would be another example of an unconscious desire, the desire to eat cake, kind of interfering with our conscious desire, the desire to you know eat nutritious food, exercise, lose weight, that sort of thing. Now that I've given you those descriptions and those examples, I think that we have uh, hopefully good enough starting point to understand what the unconscious is and how it works. So what I'm going to do next is I'm going to attempt to go a little bit further and talk about how it is that people try to deal with, how they try to cope with their unconscious. People, I think, are engaged in what I would call a battle with their unconscious. They are at war with it in a sense. Uh, They're trying to oftentimes force this part of them that has a mind and desires of its own, which are not in line with their conscious desires, to comply with a sort of logic or sense or rationale, right? Um, if somebody ever comes to you as a therapist, they might come to you and say some version of the following thing. I keep on doing this thing. I know it's a bad idea. I'm very consciously aware that it's a bad idea. I don't want to do it, but I can't seem to help myself from doing it. I, this doesn't make sense. What I'm doing does not make sense at all. I want it to make sense, but it doesn't make sense. Why am I doing this? Please help me understand why I'm doing this thing. That's the kind of person who would be doing battle with their unconscious. Uh, Another way that we could describe the unconscious and the battle that many people are engaged in with it would be to say that the unconscious is very much like a wild part of us. Uh, Again, a part of us that doesn't make sense. And what we're oftentimes trying to do is we're trying to capture that wild part of ourselves and kind of tame it or domesticate it to make it behave itself according to the rules of the society that we live in but no matter how much energy no matter how much time we put into our effort to capture and tame and domesticate this wild part of ourselves no matter how much uh, artillery you know we put into the battle that we engage in with our unconscious psychoanalytic theory would suggest that the unconscious will always evade us it will always escape it, it won't be captured it will always even if you you think you are winning the battle eventually the tidal turn in the unconscious will surprise you. It'll outflank you. It'll It'll do something that you didn't see coming, something that you didn't expect, something that doesn't make sense. So that's the unconscious as I'm trying to describe it to you. Again, I know I said this earlier, but I want to return to it because I think it's so important. If you don't buy into this idea, if you don't think the unconscious exists, then you're probably not going to, you're going to have a harder time anyways, buying into a lot of the other things that we're going to be talking about in this class. So, What I'm going to ask is that you, at the very least, entertain the possibility that the unconscious exists for a little bit before you decide that it does or that it doesn't. Um, You know, I believe that it does. I think that's probably pretty clear. If you believe that it does, okay, we're already on the same page. If you don't think it does, uh, all I'm asking is that you give me a chance to kind of win you over to the idea that the unconscious might exist here. And that concludes the first podcast lecture in this series of podcast lectures. Thank you very much for taking the time to listen to this. I will see you in class.